Every Monday and Wednesday on this channel, I do a trending news update. For those of you who aren't aware of that, what I've done now, I'm putting all of October's news segments together, one big marathon news segment. This is going to be handy maybe if you want to have it sitting in the background or you're you know, just killing some time and you want to sort of catch up on everything that happened during the news uh, on, for the month of October. I'm going to do that. Hey, you know, if you like it, I'll do that every month. Just compile everything and just give you one opportunity to sit down and it'll be pretty, uh, pretty simple and make, make it as easy for you as possible. So uh, following this introduction, I'm going to go ahead and just play from our, the beginning of October right through till the end. Hope you enjoy. Today is Monday, October 2nd, 2023. My name is Mark Beavis. On the program today, following a disastrous few months, Laurentian Bank has a new CEO. We're going to update you on that story. Also, I'll bring you the latest news on Canada's GDP, our federal deficit, and our country's job picture, and an investment opportunity that has been inaccessible to most Canadians until now will soon be available. There's trouble brewing at Rogers as workers vote 99.6% in favor of strike action. And finally, on today's program, can Alberta keep up with the immigration crush? Let's get started with today's news. Laurentian Bank said this morning that it has removed Rania Llewellyn um, as its chair and chief executive officer after it has gone through a, uh, a few very, very rough months of turmoil lately that included uh, sort of infamously a failed attempt to find uh, a buyer. Also, uh, just last week, the, the problems there were compounded further by a major customer service outage. Llewellyn, who was the first woman to run a major Canadian bank, uh, would leave immediately according to the announcement uh, after being there for three years uh, in her position. The new CEO is Eric Provost, who has been at Laurentia for 11 years. Most recently, he's been the head of personal and commercial banking. Uh, at the same time, the bank also announced the resignation of Chair Michael Muller, who was replaced by Michael Boychuk, chair of the uh, bank's audit committee currently. Uh, he was also very uh, heavily involved in the strategic review of Laurentian that included that potential sale of the bank. Uh, that review has, has just been wrapped up. Laurentian said that Mr. Provo's top priority as CEO would be to rebuild trust with the bank's customers and address the impacts of a mainframe outage that occurred last week. As somewhat of an olive branch, I suppose, the bank announced that as a result of this outage, it is going to be reversing all monthly service fees for the month of September. Preliminary data shows that Canada's gross domestic product was up slightly in August with a gain of 0.1%. Uh, this is according to a Statistics Canada report that came out on Friday. It is a, a slight rebound from last month, but still, in the big scheme of things, it actually shows very little growth. Uh, the economy did see increases in the wholesale trade and finance and insurance sectors, but these gains were largely offset by declines in retail trade and in the oil and gas extraction sectors. The manufacturing sector declined 1.5%, which is now the second straight monthly contraction in that area. Transportation and warehousing shrunk by 0.2%, with air transportation being the largest contributor to the decline um, in this sector. Now, if September's numbers are just flat, then the economy is on track to grow at 0.2% um, annualized in the third quarter. That would technically avoid a recession, but it's still nevertheless uh, a very slow growth rate. For those of you who keep track of our government's spending, the latest federal government budgetary numbers were released uh, by the Finance Department on Friday. According to the report, Canada's government budget deficit widened to $4.86 billion in July uh, 2023, and that is up from $3.87 billion in July a year earlier. 
for the months. Revenues rose 0.4%, but expenses grew at a pace of 1.2%. Now, during the first four months of the current fiscal year, so this runs April, May, June, and July, the government has uh, posted budgetary deficit of $1.2 billion, and this is uh, a sharp decline from the surplus of $6.3 billion that it posted during the same period a year ago. During the time, government revenues for the four months rose by $2.86 billion, or 2%. Program expenses, uh, excluding net actuarial losses, actually increased by $7.2 billion, so that's almost a 6% increase. Overall, public debt charges increased by $3.3 billion, which is a 29.9% increase uh, from just a year ago. This number obviously is driven by the high interest rate environment that we find ourselves in today. According to Stats Canada, the number of job vacancies in Canada fell in July to its lowest level since May of 2021. The number of job vacancies fell by 43,100 to a total of 701,300. This has now been a steady downward trend that began uh, in June of last year. The job vacancy rate is the number of vacant positions as a proportion of the total demand for labor. On a year-over-year basis, Stats Canada says that the number of job vacancies was down 28.1%. So this equates to 273,700 jobs. Currently, the number of unfilled jobs in retail trade fell by 12.8%. The number of jobs in the accommodation and the food services sector dropped 11.6%. Uh, a summary of this data basically says that there were 1.7 unemployed people for every job vacancy in July, and that is up from 1.2% at the start of the year. Canadian regulators have approved the launch of, I think it's pronounced Obsedo Alternative Investments Inc., uh, which is an online portfolio manager that's aiming to provide retail investors and financial advisors greater access to some of the world's largest private market funds. Uh, Obsido is a Toronto-based company. It's expected to announce on Wednesday this week uh, the launch of the Obsido Direct, which is an online investment platform that gives investors, or DIY investors, I guess you would say, access to two alternative investment portfolios that will be managed in investment funds. They'll be managed by uh, more than a dozen global uh, asset management firms, including Brookfield Asset Management. Obsido Direct, will be available initially to both individual investors and to financial advisors who want to purchase investments on behalf of their clients. To date, in most cases, smaller investors have had very limited access uh, to this type of investment, and it's usually dominated by the huge institutional investors, things like pension funds, very, very wealthy individuals. Uh, but there has been a push in recent years to make these alternative investments more available uh, to the average investor. And this is a, a good, a good uh, asset to have. It allows investors to build a broader diversification into their portfolios. Now, in an interview with the Globe and Mail, Obsido Chief Executive Officer Namir Bagash, he said, we wanted to close the gap that has historically made it difficult for most Canadian individual investors to invest in alternative investments. Now, as a retired portfolio manager, this was one of the areas that um, even for advisors, it was very difficult to tap into Although pretty much everyone agrees that this alt space does add value for the average investor. Obsido hopes to expand this private market growth through two new investment funds, the Obsido Alternative Growth Portfolio, the Obsido Alternative Income Portfolio. So uh, both funds will equally invest across multiple global managers. The funds can include uh, private equity, real assets, 
private credit and hedge funds in the growth fund. Uh, and in the income portfolio, each of these asset classes will be added with the exception of the private equity component. Investors will be able to set up an online account to get started, but because of the higher risk tolerance that's required with alternative investments, um, individuals who want to open accounts, they're first going to be required to discuss their risk profile with a live portfolio manager on the phone uh, before they're able to actually uh, buy in. One of the uh, major characteristics of this type of investment that people need to be aware of is this type of fund, um, unlike most investments, um, is not very liquid. In other words, you can't just uh, make a trade and get access to the funds right away like you could with stocks, with ETFs, etc. You know, within a day or two, typically. Um, in the case of these funds, investors will be able to make quarterly redemptions, although it is recommended by the company that they have an investment time horizon for, the, uh, for holding these uh, for at least two years. Uh, the funds also will have a minimum investment of $25,000. Management fees will be 0.5% for the portfolios that are purchased by uh, financial advisors uh, and 1% for those that are purchased by individual investors. Earlier this year when Rogers Communications merged or uh, took over Shaw, um, it assured that it would create 3,000 new jobs in Western Canada over a five-year time period. In fact, uh, this was a federally mandated condition uh, of the takeover, which was valued at around $26 billion at the time. Well, now the United Steelworkers Union Local 1944, it's starting to question whether Rogers is actually going to be able to live up uh, to that commitment. And now we see around 300 of the Shaw technicians that were absorbed during the merger. They voted 99.6% in favor of authorizing a strike if the current situation isn't resolved by later October. The previous collective agreement that had governed this employee group actually expired back on March 23rd of this year. And since then, the two sides have been at the bargaining table, uh, but they've yet to come up with an agreement. In July, Rogers offered packages to employees who left the company on a voluntary departure basis, uh, but they also uh, laid off an unspecified number of employees uh, as it works to sort of eliminate any duplication that occurred uh, because of the merger. The union believes that Rogers is now seeking to er erode some of the uh, contractual language uh, that was in the original merger documentation. And this language was specifically put in place to prevent the work of the staff technicians from being performed by uh, contractors or private contractors um, at homes and at businesses. According to Stats Canada, Alberta's population has set a new record for the highest net interprovincial gains um, ever recorded. As of July 1st of this year, 4.7 million people called Alberta home, uh, according to this report. This is an additional 184,400 people, or more than 4% uh, than the same time last year. Other provinces, including uh, Ontario, Manitoba, Saskatchewan, um, also saw their populations increase at records rates. And this is largely believed uh, to be as a result of a surge in um, international migration. Interprovincial migration is the difference between the number of people who move to a province uh, compared to the number of people who leave the province uh, during the same time period. The provinces and territories started tracking this data back in the early 1970s. Uh, the Alberta provincial government had projected earlier this year that the province's population is expected to pass the $5 million mark later this decade, but they've said in their report that uh, this could be possibly as early as 2025 if the current pace keeps up. The concern here, of course, is that in any municipality, um, how does the infrastructure of the cities support such a huge volume or influx uh, of people? When you look at things like education, you look at healthcare, you look at policing, um, unless major improvements are made to those areas, 
uh, in cities like Calgary, for example, uh, you're going to see a major drawback to the to the uh, large volume of people moving in. According to the uh, Calgary Real Estate Board, uh, Calgary itself is experiencing record low inventory of housing uh, for the month of August with just one month's worth of supply. And in comparison, um, Edmonton has about three months worth of supply. Now, when people move into a new community, obviously they're gonna expect that the infrastructure is there, that the amenities that they want will be in place. So what, are the, what options do they have short of dramatically increasing things like property taxes? A lot of these communities are gonna to struggle to provide uh, support to their new residents. Today is Wednesday, October 4th, 2023. On the program today, there is conflicting news in the U.S. job market that might influence the Fed's decision on whether they're going to raise rates or not. We're going to look at that story. Also, Canadians are at a financial stress level we've never seen before. Plus, is it a scandal or just bad business practices? The regulators are looking at some shenanigans in the insurance industry. And finally, Canada's housing shortage is being hurt further by the sharp increase in short-term rentals. Let's get started with today's stories. There is conflicting information coming out of the U.S. when we look at the national job market. This morning, ADP reported that private payrolls rose 89,000 in September, and that came in far below the 160,000 that had been estimated by economists that were surveyed uh, by Dow Jones. The impact here is that this might give the Federal Reserve some incentive to stop raising interest rates, and that's something that obviously affects us all. Uh, the report also noted that the average wage growth slowed to 5.9%, and now the 12th consecutive monthly decline. The largest segment of job gains came from the leisure and hospitality sector, which added 92,000 jobs in the month. Um, the sector that saw the most job losses was the professional and business sector, losing 32,000 uh, positions in the month. Nella Richardson, she is the chief economist at ADP, and she said, we are seeing a steepening decline in jobs this month, Additionally, we are seeing a steady decline in wages in the past 12 months. Now that report conflicts with the latest numbers that are out by the U.S. Labor Department. And according to it, U.S. job openings came in at 9.6 million jobs in the month of August. And that's an increase from 8.9 million in July. The consensus among uh, economists was that only another uh, 8.9 million vacancies would in fact be posted. This then is in direct contrast with the ADP report and it's a sign that the US labor market actually remains strong. And in fact, it might be too strong for the Federal Reserve's liking. It may actually prompt the Federal Reserve to further increase um, rates. Fed Chair Jerome Powell, he's already said that he would like to see um, hiring moderate before he uh, makes a, you know, takes a pause or starts to lower rates. Financial stress is on the rise with our fellow Canadians. And according to the annual survey of working Canadians uh, from the National Payroll Institute, 37% of Canadians today consider themselves to be financially stressed. And that is up 20% from last year. This stress level is now at the highest level in the 15 years that the survey has been conducted. 63% of the people who are deemed to be financially stressed live paycheck to paycheck and 50% of those feel actually overwhelmed by debt. There's also an increase, sadly, in Canadians who are resorting to using debt to finance essential needs, such as food and accommodation. The major contributing factors to these problems are obviously the current high interest rates, the rate of inflation we're seeing today. Um, Equifax recently reported that consumer debt here in Canada reached $2.4 trillion, and credit card debt alone is at an all-time high of $107.4 billion. Ontario is dealing with what I would call a bit of a scandal. Uh, the Financial Services Regulatory Authority of Ontario, so FSRA, 
Uh, they've launched dozens of enforcement actions against agents who have been identified uh, as operating with troubled uh, sales practices. In two separate compliance reports that were released yesterday, the FSRA took actions against 65 life insurance agents at three managing general agencies. So these are known as MGAs. The review found that agents broke about 184 rules under the Insurance Act. Uh, infractions included unsuitable sales practices, gaps in advisor training, advisors failing to complete uh, continuing edu education requirements, um, advisors not following best practices, and finally here, advisors not disclosing uh, conflicts of interest to their clients. These two reports were completed between May 2022 and April of 2023. They looked at agents from World Financial Group Insurance Agency of Canada, uh, Great Way Financial Inc., and Experior Financial Inc. In aggregate, these three MGAs represent about 20% of the overall agent uh, contingent in Ontario. Uh, World Financial Group itself has almost 11,000 agents and 80% of those agents are operating on a part-time basis with 86% of them saying that they have a second occupation in addition to being a life insurance agent. A major problem that's identified in this report is agencies that have tiered recruitment business models. So these are also referred to as multi-level marketing. They're referred to as network marketing. And in these cases, in addition to their duties as life insurance um, agents, the advisors are asked to recruit new advisors. Uh, and in many cases, the reports are that they're actually recruiting people from their own client base. Over the past couple of years, this multi-tiered recruitment business model um, has become a major focus um, of the regulators. And last year, the FSRA issued a compliance order against Great Way Financial, ordering them to revise its training programs and finding unfair deceptive acts by agents when selling insurance products to their clients. Another major problem that was discovered in the Canadian insurance business is that many um, inexperienced life agents are actually selling mostly universal life products. So this is a product that is considered to be unsuitable for a lot of consumers. Um, it's more expensive than some of the alternatives. And it's also so, uh, sold uh, with the focus on being, it being a savings vehicle in combination um, with the life insurance coverage. The FSRA found here that in 2020, 56% of insurance policies that were sold by these three, three companies in question here uh, were in fact universal life policies. Approximately 92% of Great Way's gross income, which is around $42.8 million a year, uh, came from the sale of these permanent life insurance policies. The report notes that in all of these instances, the clients were single people. They were in their 20s or 30s with no dependents and only uh, a modest income. And this is a segment of the population that generally doesn't need uh, a more complex insurance solution like whole or universal life. And to make matters worse, in almost 30% of these cases, the client was also carrying high interest personal debt, which wasn't factored into the product recommendation. Pretty much everywhere you look these days, you're gonna hear stories of people who are struggling to find proper housing. And I know in the community I live in here, I'm always seeing posts online uh, from families that are almost begging to find a place for, for themselves uh, to live. There's a couple of things that are happening that make the situation worse than it should be. For example, there is a trend in Ontario for landlords to change their long-term rental units into short-term leases. A lot of them are citing the problems that they're having with the Ontario Landlord uh, Tenant Board as the reason for this. Now, apparently, 
It takes landlords today eight months just to book an appointment with the tribunal. And if tenants are giving them problems with things such as not paying their rent, causing damage to the property, there's that long waiting period before they can even get a complaint started. In these cases, a large number of these landlords are uh, you know, stuck paying mortgages on the properties. They don't have the cash flow coming in from the tenants who would be uh, you know, paying their rent if they were living up uh, to their end of the bargain. Now, largely because of this challenge, a lot of landlords know that if they have a short-term rental, such as an Airbnb, as the most ex uh, vivid example, they're removed from the oversight then of the landlord tenant board, the rights then shift back to their favor. Uh, they have more control over their properties. And you know, probably the biggest thing is that they can actually make more money. It's more profitable to do the short-term than it is to, um, to do long-term rentals. With the challenging economic conditions that we're facing today, more and more of these tenants are, are failing to pay their rent. This just further exacerbates the problem and it puts landlords uh, in a bigger bind. The irony here is that people who actually have the buildings, who are actually able to provide housing, they're not being incentivized to operate as longer term rentals. And in fact, they're really being pushed um, in, the, uh, in the other direction. Now, as another example, uh, according to a recent report put out by McGill University, the number of short-term rentals in British Columbia grew almost 20% year over year. And this, of course, takes uh, available housing away from, from the longer-term residents uh, of BC. And that same McGill University report shines light on the problems uh, created by companies such as Airbnb, VRBO, etc. The report shows that there are tens or even hundreds of thousands um, of residential units that, that once had been built under the auspice, I guess you would, of being residential units. And once they've been built and once they've been approved as those residential units, they're being uh, converted into what are essentially a commercial space to be operated, to uh, be rented out uh, to tourists. Uh, around 17,000 housing units were lost to short-term rental platforms in British Columbia this summer alone. The report also highlights the fact that there are a very small number of individuals or businesses that are actually even running these properties. Um, only 20% of hosts, according to this report, are responsible for 48.8%, so almost 50% of the total revenue that's generated under these platforms. The top 1% of hosts, which are uh, 1,930 operators, accounted for 20.7% of the overall revenues. The report states the case of a Winnipeg Airbnb profile named New Host, and this entity operates 87 entire homes in the city of Winnipeg alone. There are also sightings of a more commercial operators who are just systematically buying up or even leasing houses and converting them into dedicated short-term rental use. There have been some jurisdictions that have uh, taken steps to put limits on short-term rentals, but the reality is that enforcement remains practically impossible. It is Monday, October 9th, 2023 today. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone. On the program today, Canada's overall trade surplus is up again and trade with the US continues to climb. We're gonna look at those numbers. Plus, StatsCan is out with a shocking job number. We're gonna look at how that might affect the Bank of Canada's next rate decision. Also today, Ottawa is looking at options to limit Airbnbs in our Canadian cities. Tesla is lowering prices again. And finally on today's show, what does the massive bond sell-off mean for investors? Let's get started with today's news. Quick update here on our country's latest trade report. Stats Canada has released the most recent numbers and it showed that Canada posted a surprise 718 million US dollar surplus in the month of August. And this number was driven primarily by two things. 
There's a surge in transfers of gold into the US and also with higher crude prices. Now, as a sign of how difficult it can be to predict these things, a recent uh, Reuters poll of analysts had resulted in a forecast of $1.5 billion as a deficit. So there's about a $2.2 billion um, outage uh, on that uh, on that estimate. Exports to the United States uh, increased 5.2% in August, while imports from our southern neighbors actually rose just 0.6%. Now, as a result, uh, Canada's trade surplus with the United States widened from $8.2 billion in July to $10.4 billion in the month of August. Total exports for the month increased by 5.7% and imports were just up 3.8%. Stats Canada has also released some pretty shocking numbers out of the Canadian job front, uh, reporting a net gain of 64,000 jobs for the month of September. And this absolutely blew away the estimate of 20,000 from the Bay Street Economist Group. Uh, unemployment, however, interestingly, remained steady at 5.5%. And there's the strong employment numbers came out, but those were offset by uh, the, the huge number of uh, population growth led primarily, in this case, uh, by immigration. Now in the month, the average hourly wage for permanent employees rose 5.3% uh, from September of last year. And it was also up uh, from the 5.2% annual raise that we saw in August. The increase in jobs was very narrowly based. It was driven mostly by a gain of 66,000 jobs in the education sector. Um, this also though comes on the heels of a $44,000 decline um, in education employment in August. Overall, employee growth was also tilted more in favor of part-time workers than it was uh, for full-time workers in September. According to the report, about 75% of the jobs that were added were actually part-time. And this uh, might suggest that the labor market's uh, conditions are sort of continuing to ease beneath, uh, beneath the headlines. Um, another line of note is that self-employment was up by another 26,000 people. And self-employment is traditionally you know, the softest of the data. That 5.5% unemployment rate, it is reflective of the population growth that is continuing to surge. And even though uh, the jobs have gone up significantly, so has the population. So the overall labor market itself hasn't actually tightened that much. And this is presenting a challenge to uh, Tiff Macklem and his team there as they're trying to decide on whether at the next meeting, which happens on October the 25th, to either you know hold rates where they are or to raise them. And with this most recent news, and when you combine that with you know a, a renewed uptick in inflation, they might feel forced that they have to raise interest rates or of course at a minimum, uh, just keep them uh, where they are, keep them on hold for, for a longer period of time than they might otherwise uh, want to do. Now, if we use the interest rate swaps market as a guide, the markets today are pricing in about a 40% chance that the Bank of Canada will actually raise rates by a quarter of a point when it meets later this month. And those odds are up from just 28% a week ago. So you can see how, the, um, how these numbers uh, impact their decisions. Um, at the end of the day, the Bank of Canada really only has these two options. They can either raise rates or hold. Uh, there, I mean, there's, there's no realistic chance of them uh, lowering them right now. They're definitely going to be looking at these most recent reports for signs that the labor demand is easing. And you know, if they read between the lines uh, of these most recent numbers, they probably can find uh, a reason, an excuse uh, for either of the two options. They can either hold or raise. We'll see what they do in just a few weeks. The federal government has announced plans to limit the number of Airbnbs that you find in municipalities in order to uh, free up uh, more rental units. And it's been looking recently at a lot of different ways to address the housing affordability issues that we find in pretty much any community, doesn't matter where you look across the country. Um, in the new plan, the government is expected to try and induce the municipalities to limit 
the number of Airbnb units through uh, local bylaw amendments. And what it's doing is it's eyeing using the uh, the $4 billion um, housing accelerator fund um, to encourage municipalities to limit the number uh, of short-term rentals. And by using this tool, it feels that it could address um, the rental shortages in not only the larger cities like the Vancouver's, Toronto's, Montreal's, but also in smaller communities. And there's lots of reports of places like Whistler and Banff where there aren't even enough homes in those locales to, um, to even house the employees that are working there. Uh, another tool the government also could use is good old fashioned uh, taxation. They could uh, tweak things there to discourage um, owners from even taking the steps to listing their properties for short-term rentals. Uh, an example that has been floated is they could increase um, the GST that's charged on this uh, type of rental might be stretching it a little bit, but their options really are limited when it comes to this because, you know, housing, of course, is uh, the jurisdiction of each of those local municipalities. After recently reporting that it missed market delivery expectations, um, Tesla has cut the prices of both its Model 3 and its Model Y uh, vehicles. And since the start of 2023 now, they've dropped the prices on its Model 3s by 17% and on the Model Y long-range variant by more than 26%. The standard Model 3 sedan in the U.S. is now selling for $38,990. The Model Y long-range costs $48,490 according to Tesla's website. Now, there are only three months remaining in its fiscal year and Tesla would have to deliver a record 476,000 more vehicles in the last three months to meet its target of delivering 1.8 million vehicles in this year. Bond yields in both the US and Canadian bond markets reached a 16 year high last week. The general thought here is that the current elevated interest rates we're seeing are going to last for some time yet. When we do see the shift in the sentiment in the bond market, it looks like there's basically an acceptance out there that the higher interest rates that we're seeing uh, right now may be with us for longer than originally anticipated. You know, with interest rates as high as they are today, a lot of people are looking and saying that the space is finally investable again. And for so long, uh, for so long, it has been under everyone's radar because uh, you know, with the near zero returns we saw for so long, and then a horrible bond year in 2022, people were essentially uh, ignoring the space. Uh, this seems to have shifted now, and, and both short and long-term bond market investors are starting to feel um, that there may be an opportunity out there to take a position. Um, obviously, there remains a risk that the rates could go higher from here. That would obviously impact the values, uh, but it would probably be pretty short-term in nature if it did in fact happen. Uh, for investors with a medium to long-term time horizon, it might make sense to take a slice of your fixed income allocation in a portfolio um, and lock in these higher yields. Today is Wednesday, October the 11th, 2023. On the program today, there's been a big announcement in the energy sector today. We're going to look at that. Also, Pepsi is out with a pretty good earnings report. And the IMF has a somewhat gloomy outlook on the global economy. I'll cover the highlights of that. X and Meta have 24 hours to respond to the European Union regulators over fake news. And finally, on today's program, the latest from the on-again, off-again auto strike. Let's get started with today's news. ExxonMobil announced this morning that it has agreed to buy Pioneer Natural Resources for $59.5 billion or $253 a share in what's expected to be an all-stock deal. According to the agreement, Pioneer shareholders will receive 2.3234 shares of Exxon for every Pioneer share that they own. The deal is expected to close in the first half of 2024. Um, Exxon CEO Darren Woods, he said in a statement, the combined capabilities of our two companies will provide long-term value creation well in excess of what either company is capable of doing on a standalone basis. Pepsi announced its third quarter earnings and revenues yesterday. and The report was actually a pretty good one. 
Q3 2023 earnings per share were $2.24. That compares with $1.95 in Q3 a year ago. So that's a 14.8% gain. Q3 net revenues of $23.45 billion is 6.7% more than the $21.97 billion announced a year ago. The company now has outperformed the consensus estimates for four consecutive quarters. Uh, one of the highlights of the report was in Latin America, where sales were up 21% year over year. Uh, when it comes to guidance, they also provided good guidance. They raised uh, the fiscal 2023 uh, earnings per share guidance from $7.47 a share to $7.54. They also reaffirmed their fiscal 2023 organic revenue uh, growth target of 10%. The International Monetary Fund released its October World Economic Outlook yesterday and it calls for slower growth ahead and it highlighted some of the potential problems that we're facing uh, or that the world is facing uh, when it comes to its banking infrastructure. The report highlighted uh, some of the issues the world economy is facing today, including the impact of higher interest rates. They talk about the invasion of Ukraine, the new conflict going on now between Israel and Hamas, and a widening geopolitical rifts uh, just in general terms. When it comes to global economies, the IMF uh, is expecting global economic growth to slow to 3% this year and then further to 2.9% in 2024. And it cites the fact that the world has, has yet to really fully recover from the COVID-19 recession back in 2020. Uh, and now with a fallout in the Middle East, obviously oil prices are at risk. Under the baseline, it's about 5% of banks that are relatively weak in terms of their capital. And in severe stress, that number goes up to 30% or sometimes higher. The report itself didn't identify specific banks that they say would struggle under these economic circumstances, but they did say specifically that it did include both small and large lenders. When it comes to financial education, I think we can all agree that there is a massive gap in the education system. And when my boys went through school, they had virtually no formal training in how to manage their finances. And this is especially true when it comes to investing. So from time to time, I like to take a moment and just let those of you who are new to our channel to know that in addition to this YouTube channel, we have our investing academy. And this is where we have online training. Our programs are designed to take you through the whole investment process from being a raw beginner right through to being a fully confident investor. So you can check out the Academy website for more information. I will put a link in the description of this video. Both X and Meta have come onto the fake news radar over in Europe and on Tuesday, officials there warned X that with the outbreak of the war between Hamas and Israel, there appears to be a significant increase in the amount of misinformation, illegal content, etc that is being posted to its social media platform. This morning, the regulators also issued the same warning to Meta, and in both cases, they've given the companies 24 hours to take action and comply with European law, which is known as the Digital Securities Act that came into effect back in August. Now, if the regulators conclude that violations have occurred, the companies could face literally billions of dollars in fines, and in fact, they could face penalties of up to 6% of their revenue. Since the outbreak of the conflict in the Middle East, everything from fake White House press, uh, press releases, uh, false news reports, and out-of-context videos from unrelated conflicts or even video games has appeared um, on the platform um, under the DSA. When officials highlight this questionable contact, companies have to act swiftly and intervene. Now, in an example that was given, there is a fake video that has been posted 
which is designed to look like a BBC News report. The video itself is, it falsely claimed that Ukraine had smuggled weapons um, to Hamas. And the video is made to look like a real BBC re news report. It includes you know, the graphics, the fonts, etc., that are almost identical to what uh, BBC uses in its own uh, online video reports. In at least one case, this video was posted to the X platform. Um, in response, X uh, didn't remove the fake BBC videos, but it did put a label under it noting that it was what they call manipulated media. A spokesperson for the BBC posted on, uh, on X on Tuesday that the video is 100% fake. The European Commission reminded all social media companies that they are legally required to prevent and spread harmful content related uh, to Palestinian militant group Hamas, which is prescribed as a terrorist group in the EU. In a statement, a commission spokesperson said, content circulating online that can be associated to Hamas qualifies as terrorist content, is illegal, and needs to be removed under both the Digital Services Act and terrorist content online regulation. So yesterday, the General Motors auto workers at Canadian plants went on strike for 12 hours. Then they went back to work after it was announced that Unifor and GM have reached a tentative agreement. Uh, Uniform says that the deal uh, still must be approved by its members, and it noted that it matches the union, uh, that matches the agreement that the union reached with Ford last month. So this will now move things on to the final round of bargaining with Stellantis. In this case, the two sides are using what's called pattern bargaining, and this means that they first reach an agreement with Ford, which they did in September, and that agreement is then used as a precedent or as a template for their negotiations with both GM and Stellantis. The key highlights of this agreement with GM include wage increases for production workers of almost 20% over three years and 25% for skilled tradespeople. Um, also wage progression, so that the scale that people walk up um, goes from a, a four-year schedule to reach the top rate uh, down from the current eight years. Also included is a $10,000 signing bonus and improvements to the pension plan. At the end of this three-year deal, the top production worker would make $44.52 an hour and skilled trade workers, people like welders, millwrights, would be paid $56 an hour. Now, the deal with GM still needs to be ratified by the union members, and it's not lost on me that the Ford agreement, which was signed in uh, September, was ratified by just 54% of its workers. So with this as a, as a precedent, uh, certainly the ratification of this new agreement is not going to be automatic. Now, adding to the auto industry strike problems, union workers at Mack Trucks went on strike yesterday after they actually rejected a tentative five-year contract that they had reached uh, with the company. This now results in 4,000 more unionized UAW workers heading to the picket lines. In total now, there are more than 30,000 members who are on strike across 22 states. Uh, union President Sean Fain said that 73% of the workers voted against the deal that had been reached back on October 1st. The deal included a 19% pay raise over the life of a contract and 10% upon ratification. But when you compare that with the negotiations and agreements with the, the big three automakers, the unions there have asked for a 36% pay raise over four years. Uh, Ford has offered 26%. Both GM and Stellantis are at 20%. Today is Monday, October 16th, 2023. Welcome to the program. On the show today, rent in Canada is up, but housing prices are down. We're going to look at those stories. Plus, we'll look at what Canada's parliamentary budget office has to say about our economy. Also, the latest U.S. inflation numbers are out. We'll look at those. Microsoft had a $100 billion week. 
U.S. bank earnings reports look good, GM ratifies a contract, and one of the U.S.'s largest drugstores files for bankruptcy. Let's get started with today's news. According to a recent report from Rentals.ca, Canada's rental crisis is getting worse. The report says that the average asking price for rent in September was $2,149, and this is up 11% compared with a year ago. If you live in Toronto, you're renting in one of the most expensive real estate markets, obviously, in the country. The average rent for a one-bedroom property there now stands at $2,614. Now, the only sliver of good news is that the average price of rent actually dropped by 0.2% when you compare that to the numbers in August. But when you look at a one-year number, rents have actually increased by 4.9%. Now, if you think you have a bad in Toronto, uh, it's even worse actually in Vancouver. A one-bedroom apartment today costs almost $3,000 a month on average, and that's up 10% from a year ago. Uh, if you need a little more space and you want a two-bedroom unit, that's going to run you around $4,000 a month. Uh, the report also saw, interestingly, a 27% increase in people who are choosing to live with others um, to help manage their rent payments. Uh, an average roommate, therefore, in Toronto is paying $1,300 a month, and in Vancouver, that's up to uh, $1,500 a month. Perhaps a bit surprisingly, I know it was to me, the third highest provincial average in Canada falls to Nova Scotia. The average rent there is $2,088 last month. Now, this increase is driven mostly because uh, people tend to move to comparatively uh, more affordable uh, locations. And of course, when that happens en masse, that's going to drive up the demand. It'll also drive up prices in those areas. I'm not sure if you'd really call this a silver lining necessarily, but the Canadian Real Estate Association reported that the home price index in Canada was $753,900 in September, and that is a 0.3% decrease um, over the August numbers. And this is also now the first decrease that we've seen since March. On a national basis, the average selling price in September was $655,507, which is an increase of 2.5% from last year. Uh, the association does note that these prices are skewed primarily because of the expensive markets in both Toronto uh, and Vancouver. When we look at it from a sales volume perspective, home resales uh, fell 1.9% in September when you compare that to August, uh, with most of this coming from, again, those Vancouver and Toronto markets. The association now projects a 10% drop in sales when you compare it with uh, last year. Another notable item from the report is the increase in the number of homes that are being sold because property has been repossessed. Uh, and in Toronto, for example, that number was almost double uh, from a year ago coming in in this report uh, at 70 units. I posted a video over the weekend talking about a few things that I see out there in the markets that are making me think uh, that the markets might be a little bit over overvalued right now. And uh, I do actually plan to make some changes uh, in my own portfolio to hedge that downside risk. Um, if you're interested in knowing what I do, if you're on the Blossom app, my username is Mark B, so M-A-R-C-B. Um, if you're not on the Blossom app, go ahead and download the app. You can sign up there and you can follow me there. Canada's parliamentary budget office has released its latest economic and fiscal outlook. The major takeaway is that higher interest rates are going to lead the economy into be, uh, to be stagnant uh, in the second half of this year. Uh, the report also says we can expect consumer spending to remain weak for the balance of the year uh, and through the first half of 2024. It also notes the federal deficit is projected to grow to $46.5 billion. That is $6 billion more than what the federal budget had projected back in March. The budget office expects the debt-to-GDP ratio to jump to 42.6% uh, this fiscal year. 
Then that ratio is expected to gradually fall to 37.8% by the 28-29 fiscal year. This is assuming there's no new measures uh, and it is still above the pre-pandemic level of 31.2% of GDP back in the 2019-2020 fiscal year. The main culprit of these higher numbers is, of course, higher interest rates, and this is raising the cost of debt uh, for the federal government. A Bank of Montreal research report notes said that if interest rates settle in at this higher level than they were before the pandemic, it could add um, an additional $10 billion uh, in our deficit down the road. And also economists at Desjardins, they've said that these higher interest rates could add about $5 billion a year to the federal deficit. The consumer price index in the U.S. was up 3.7% year over year in September, and that is actually unchanged from the month of August. Month over month, though, the inflation rate rose 0.4%. Core inflation, which excludes food and energy, uh, that was up 4.1% year over year in September, and that actually is a decrease from the 4.3% we saw last month. Some of the more noteworthy specifics of this report are that food prices are up 3.7% year over year. Uh, rent saw an increase of 7.15%. Energy prices actually were down 0.45%. And it will be very interesting to see how Canada's numbers compare when they're announced uh, tomorrow. The latest numbers do show how little uh, progress, I, I would say, is being made in this journey that the U.S. Fed is on to take inflation back to its 2% um, target level. The most recent projections are 90% that the Fed will actually leave its benchmark rate uh, unchanged when it uh, makes its next announcement on November 1st. And there's a 10% probability of a 25-point basis hike. It's been quite a week for Microsoft with approximately $100 billion worth of financial activity out there. Some of it's good, uh, some of it bad. First off, they completed the deal to buy Activision Blizzard that's been going on for so long now. Uh, that had a price tag of $69 billion. Um, I'll put that into the good cap. But on a less positive note, the IRS um, has notified that they uh, claim that Microsoft owes $28.9 billion in back taxes plus penalties and plus interest. And this number comes from a probe that the IRS has had going uh, for the sales practices at Microsoft that they used during the years of 2004 through to 2013. The practice, which is known as, as transfer pricing, it's when companies minimize tax burden by reporting lower profits in countries that have a higher tax rate and conversely, uh, a higher profits in, in jurisdictions with lower tax rates. Um, the current audit began back in 2007 and the IRS has recently given notice that the audit has ended. Uh, Microsoft, as you might imagine, they've countered. They say that the practices they used um, were not unusual. They did everything that they were entitled to. The company also says that it followed IRS rules and it will appeal the decision. And that process itself is expected to take several more years. Generally speaking, the first round of earnings reports from the U.S. banks were pretty good with everybody that reported last week beating the street estimates. J.P. Morgan Chase announced earnings per share of $4.33, and that's up from $3.12 a year ago. Revenue jumped 22% to $39.87 billion. That's above the street's estimate of $39.4 billion. Citigroup reported its third quarter earnings as well in an EPS of $1.52 per share, up from $1.50 a year earlier. They announced revenue from the quarter of $20.14 billion, and that compares with $18.5 billion a year ago. Wells Fargo reported Q3 earnings of $1.48 per diluted share, up from $0.86 cents a year earlier. They also recorded revenue from the quarter of $20.86 billion, up from $19.57 billion a year ago. And finally, in the financial space, BlackRock reported Q3 adjusted earnings of $10.91 per diluted share, 
up from $9.55 a year earlier. Revenue from the quarter was $4.52 billion, up from $4.31 billion a year ago. The company also said that its Q3 assets under management increased 14% from a year earlier to just over $9.1 trillion. Unifor, which is the union that represents Canadian auto workers, they say that workers at GM have agreed to a three-year collective agreement. They ratified the deal with an 80% vote. And this is noticeably more decisive than the Ford vote, which was ratified with only 54% of its union members. Um, the new contract sees a wage increase of almost 20% for production workers and 25% for skilled trade workers. It will also see workers top out at the, at the on the wage tier uh, more quickly. It shows improvements to pensions as well as two new paid holidays. One of America's largest pharmacy chains, Rite Aid, has filed for bankruptcy on Sunday. The company has about $3.4 billion that it says it's going to use to fund its operations, expects to continue to operate while they go through the bankruptcy process. Uh, Rite Aid has more than 45,000 employees and it uh, states that deteriorating sales in recent years, as well as uh, being unable to effectively compete against companies like CVS and Walgreens has led to these financial woes. Uh, according to the company filings, as of June, it had $3.3 billion in debt and also noted that um, looming over the company is, of course, the pending opioid litigation. Like many of its competitors, Rite Aid has closed a number of stores in recent months. It also has announced plans to close hundreds more um, over the next while. The stock has fallen nearly 80% uh, since the start of this year. It is Wednesday, October the 18th, 2023. On the program today, the province of Alberta might want to leave the Canada Pension Plan and set up its own provincial pension plan. We're going to look at the latest news there. Also, Canada's newest inflation numbers dropped last month. We'll update you on that. Plus, if you manage an Airbnb in British Columbia, you are not going to like the new legislation that they've just announced. The Bank of Nova Scotia is laying off some staff, and we're going to look at the latest earnings reports. Let's get started with today's news. The Alberta provincial government held a town hall meeting on Monday, and they wanted to hear arguments as to whether they should quit participation in the Canada Pension Plan and set up their own uh, provincial plan. About a month ago or so, the province launched an online survey and they wanted to gauge how Alberta residents feel about the proposal. Alberta currently represents about 11.5% of Canada's population, but it is claiming that the province is entitled to $334 billion or 53% of the pension fund. The stated purpose of this week's town hall was to hear from Albertans and to listen to their concerns so the government can theoretically make note and ultimately address the specific uh, concerns and specific questions. Some popular questions that needed to be answered are things like the portability of the plan, uh, things like who's going to manage, so the investment manager of the plan, uh, death and disability issues. Uh, a caller also asked how the program would integrate with the current uh, federal old age security system. For more information on the overall pension plan um, here in Canada, I will provide a link for another video that covers all that off. Another obvious question, which can't be answered yet, of course, is how many people would plan on moving to Alberta to take advantage of an Alberta pension plan if it's deemed to be superior to the current uh, Canada pension plan. Um, if Alberta were to withdraw from the CPP, it would need to provide written notice of its intent. It would have to draft um, uh, legislation and, and establish a, uh, an Alberta pension plan that is equivalent to what we have now. Um, it would also need to start accepting contributions beginning the third year following the year in which it gives notice. And again, the benefits would have to be comparable to the existing Canada pension plan. 
Das Canada reported on Tuesday that Canada's inflation rate actually decelerated uh, down to 3.8% in September, and that's down from 4% that was reported back in August. They noted that the drop in the cost of living was broad-based, which is nice. It affected goods and services, travel, durable goods, and some grocery items. Um, on a monthly basis, for the first time since November 2022, the cost of living actually declined in September. The drop was only 0.1%, but at least it was moving in the right direction. Now, as is always the case, the price of gasoline affected these numbers. So gas prices fell 1.3% during the month, still up 7.5% from a year ago. Um, if gasoline was stripped out of the inflation numbers, the rate would have come down to 3.7% and down uh, from 4.1% in August. If you have any travel plans in the near future, you're going to welcome the fact that airfares declined 21.1% in September uh, compared to this time last year. And yes, grocery prices did continue to go up, but they went up at a much slower rate than we've seen um, over the past number of months. On an annual basis, the cost of groceries went up 5.8%. And then what was excellent news for me, the price actually declined for bacon, grapes, and some types of cheese. Now, my guess here is that this most recent report will probably be a nice surprise for the Bank of Canada. It might just give them enough confidence to hold the rate steady at the current 5% when they meet um, next week. They're meeting again on October the 25th. Um, the current odds um, are 20% chance that they will increase the rate, and that's down from 40% uh, percent just a few days ago before these most recent inflation numbers were announced. British Columbia Premier David Eby and Housing Minister Ravi Kalan, they announced the Short-Term Accommodations Act on Monday. And in the announcement, um, Eby highlighted the fact that thousands of homes used to be available either to buy or to rent, but are now off the market for people who are looking for a reasonable place um, to live at a, you know, struggling to find accommodation. The province estimates that there are around 28,000 short-term rental units today that are operating in communities across the country. Uh, about half of those are not compliant with existing municipal bylaws. Uh, according to the new legislation, in May 2024, the province is going to make it mandatory that short-term rentals can only be made for people who are renting out a part of their principal residence. In other words, if you have a spare room or if you have a secondary suite within your home, you'll be able to rent it out, but only if you also live in the residence. Now, there are a couple of exceptions that have been carved out here. The new rule is going to apply to communities that have 10,000 or more residents, but resort destinations like Whistler, Tofino, La Soyuz, they will be exempt from that. And in addition, uh, cities with a vacancy rate of 3% or more can also apply for an exemption. Uh, as part of the new legislation, the penalty for illegal operators will increase from currently $1,000 per infraction per day up to $3,000. Additionally, regional districts which don't have um, the current authority to regulate or license businesses because they're, they're uh, regional uh, districts, they will actually be given, be allowed to license and regulate short-term rentals as well. Uh, finally, by next summer, short-term rental platforms such as Airbnb, they're going to be required to share data with the province, including information that is specific to the hosts. Now, in a battle of philosophical standpoint, I would say, a Premier EB, he said, if you're an investor and you're buying three, four, or five homes and using short-term rentals to make wealth, the message here is that it is no longer allowed. And then Airbnb replied to that in a statement. And basically, they said that the legislation, in their opinion, won't alleviate the housing prices, crisis rather. Um, it will instead make the, um, it'll just take money out of people's pockets and inflate the cost of accommodations for visitors uh, and of course decrease tourism revenue. 
Bank of Nova Scotia announced yesterday that it has plans to cut 3% of its global workforce. And they're now joining a, a parade of other Canadian banks that are trimming their staff as they're facing continuing headwinds in the sector. Um, in a statement, Scotiabank said that these cuts are being made largely because customers have changed the way that they access their banking products and services. I think we could all relate to that. Uh, it's also a continuation of the bank's digitization and automation uh, efforts. These cuts come on the heels of Royal Bank already announcing that they've uh, cut 1% of their staff already and expects another 1% to 2% cut in this quarter. And also the Bank of Montreal has announced that it has reduced its workforce by 2.5%. I have a few earnings uh, reports to share that came out since the last update here. Um, yesterday, Bank of America reported now its best third quarter results in more than a decade. Uh, they reported 90 cents per diluted share, up from 81 cents a year ago. Revenue from the quarter was $25.17 billion. That's up from $24.5 billion a year earlier. Uh, Goldman Sachs also reported yesterday, and they reported, uh, get this, a 33% decline in profit um, in Q3. And this is now eight quarters in a row that Goldman has reported a year-over-year -year, uh, profit decline. They reported diluted earnings per shares of $5.47 for the third quarter. That is down from $8.25 from uh, the third quarter a year ago. Net revenues were $11.82 billion, down 1% year over year, and net earnings of $2.06 billion. Lockheed Martin also reported yesterday, and they reported fiscal uh, third quarter earnings of $6.77 per diluted share. That again is down from the $6.87 a year ago. Net sales for the quarter were $16.88 billion. That's up from $16.58 billion a year ago. Now for fiscal 2023, the company says it continues to expect its diluted um, earnings per share to fall in the range of $27 to $27.20. They're expecting net sales of $66.25 billion uh, to $66.75 billion. Johnson & Johnson reported adjusted earnings of $2.66 per diluted share. That's up from $2.23 a year ago. For 2023, the company said it now expects adjusted earnings per share of $10.07 to $10.13. That is up from the prior guidance of $10 to $10.10. Sales for the year are now projected to be in a range of $83.6 billion to $84 billion. That compares with its prior outlook of $83.2 billion to $84 billion. Earlier today, Morgan Stanley reported its third quarter earnings. It reported $1.38 per diluted share. That is down from $1.47 a year earlier. It is down, but it did beat estimates of $1.27 per share. Net revenue for the quarter was $13.27 billion, up from $12.99 billion a year earlier. U.S. Bank Corp. also reported. They reported $1.05 per diluted share down from $1.18 a year earlier. Revenue from the quarter was $7.03 billion, and that compares with $6.33 billion a year ago. Finally today with our earnings numbers, Procter & Gamble reported its fiscal Q1 um, earnings this morning. It uh, reported $1.83 per diluted share. That's up from $1.57 a year ago. Net sales for the quarter were $21.87 billion, up from $20.61 billion a year earlier. The company said that it expects a fiscal 2024 earnings per share of $6.25 a share to $6.43, somewhere in that range. Um, all in sales growth for the current fiscal year is now projected to be 2% to 4%, and that compares with a growth rate of 3% to 4% that they previously had announced. 
Today is Monday, October 23rd, 2023. Welcome to the program. On the show today, the U.S. 10-year treasuries passed the 5% mark this morning. We're going to look at the impact that has on the equity markets. Also, the Bank of Canada will be announcing its rate decision this Wednesday. We're going to assess what that might look like. Plus, in a tale of two stories, we're going to look at earnings from Tesla and Netflix. The Canadian Federation of Independent Business has a dire warning for Canadian businesses if a key loan deadline isn't extended. And finally, on today's shows, there is another huge deal in the energy sector. Let's get started with today's news. The top story today just has to be the yield of the U.S. 10-year Treasury, and it briefly broke above the 5% level this morning, and that's the highest that it has been now since 2007. And if we think back, we all kind of know what happened back in 2007. It wasn't very pretty. Now, because the signs of a strong U.S. economy are still there, the odds are getting steeper that we're going to be in this era of these higher interest rates uh, remaining for a longer period of time. And that ties into our investments for a couple of reasons. First, obviously, higher interest rates for a longer period of time can't be good for businesses, and it will slow the growth rate that we're going to expect to see from businesses in general. Uh, but also, when interest rates rise, they're more attractive as an alternative investment when you compare them with the yields that you can get on stocks. So investors are reluctant to buy equities, and this puts additional downward pressure on the prices. And this is exactly what we've been seeing in the last few months as we've seen markets pull back. As we see the be- the bond sell-off continue, it's just a reminder that the Fed really can't provide a high level of comfort right now that the tightening cycle has ended. Um, it is widely expected that the Fed will leave its rate unchanged at the next meeting, which is coming up on November 1st. Uh, but they certainly have, in their commentary, left uh, more room for increases if the economic data uh, doesn't indicate what they want it to, uh, to tell them. Uh, at this point, it looks like there's little doubt that the Treasury market will now suffer its unprecedented third straight year of losses. The Bank of Canada will be reporting its policy decision on Wednesday morning this week. Economists are fully expecting the bank will pause on any increase and leave uh, rates where they are now at 5%. Um, Last week's inflation numbers came in and they were lower than expected with year-over-year inflation of 3.8%, and that's down from 4% in August. There are some strong signs that Canadians are cutting back on their spending. And the Bank of Canada, in its most recent quarterly business survey, it showed some negative sentiment that showed that companies are having regarding their future sales. It said that roughly half of the businesses said that their pricing practices aren't back to normal yet, and they expect uh, to raise selling prices at a slower pace than they have um, over the past 12 months. I guess that's good news uh, for consumers, but not good news for the economy in general. Um, This will obviously then trickle down. Uh, More businesses will think that higher rates are going to be higher for longer. They're going to constrain their sales and their investment plans in the coming year. Um, In the context of weakening demand, firms are planning to slow hiring, according to the report. Uh, There aren't any widespread layoffs expected, so that's good. Um, They are definitely, these are negative signs for uh, for the economy, but it does at least give the Bank of Canada some room to leave its rates where they are. Central Bank Governor Tiff Macklem, he's indicated in the past that although the bank has already raised uh, rates 10 times now since March of last year. He has left the door open for additional hikes um, if the inflation numbers come in high or if the economy uh, doesn't slow at a, at a pace that they're comfortable with. Um, in its most recent forecast in July, the bank projected economic growth is going to slow for the remainder of 2023 and into the first half of 2024. Now, prior to these inflation numbers that just came out, the markets were pricing in a 40% likelihood that there would be an increase this year. But today, with the most recent information in, uh, that sits at only 15%. 
When it comes to financial education, we can all agree that there is a massive gap in the education system in general. And I think back to when my boys went to school and they received virtually no formal training on how to manage their finances. And that's especially true when it comes time to investing. So uh, from time to time, what I like to do is I like to take a moment and let those of you who are new to our channel know that in addition to our YouTube channel here, we have the Investing Academy. And this is where we have online training. Our programs are designed to take you through the whole investment process. And if you're a raw beginner, it'll take you through uh, right through to being fully confident um, as an investor. So uh, check out the Academy website for more information. I will put a link uh, in the description of this video. Shares of Tesla dropped more than 15% last week as Elon Musk shared his uh, pessimistic thoughts uh, during his third quarter earnings call. And on the call, Musk tried to temper investors' expectations for the company's Cybertruck, which we've heard so much about. He actually went so far as to say, and I'll quote this, we dug our own grave with Cybertruck. He said that um, he wants to lower expectations for the truck. He knows that it will be uh, a year to 18 months before the truck becomes a positive uh, cash flow contributor. Um, in classic Musk style, he did paint an optimistic picture though, and he noted that demand is off the charts. At this point, Tesla is expected to debut the Cybertruck on November 30th, but as Musk noted, um, they have to make it at a price that people can afford, and in his words now, that will be insanely difficult. Uh, for the period ending September 30th, 2023, revenue increased for the company 9% year over year to $23.35 billion, but that did trail consensus of $24.14 billion. Adjusted earnings per share were 66 cents. That's now down 37% from $1.05 a year earlier and below the street's view of 0.73%. Gross profit margin slid to 17.9%. That's down 719 basis points. Now, in what is certainly a bit of a nightmare for Elon Musk, uh, since the last reported earnings, uh, the market has wiped about $130 billion off of Tesla's market cap, and it's estimated that Musk himself lost around $30 billion of his personal fortune. Now, in an earnings with a flip side result, Netflix's password sharing crackdown really seems to be working. In its third quarter earnings report, it announced it had added 8.76 million global subscribers during the quarter. That far exceeded the estimate of 5.49 million. Total memberships are now 247.15 million versus the 243.88 million that the street had expected. Earnings per share were $3.73, and that beats the expectation of $3.49 a share. Revenue was $8.54 billion versus $7.93 billion a year earlier. Net income for the company, $1.68 billion compared with $1.4 billion a year ago. According to the federal government's website, back in 2020, Ottawa approved interest-free Canada emergency business account loans, SEBA uh, as they're known, for between $40,000 and $60,000 to 898,271 businesses. And the original terms were that if the loans were fully repaid by December 31st, 2022, um, Ottawa would forgive up to $20,000 on loans that, uh, as high as $60,000, and they would forgive $10,000 for a loan of $40,000. Now, last year, the deadline was uh, extended. The deadline to repay was extended by one year. It has now been adjusted, and it currently is set to uh, mature or to the expectation of repayment on January 18th of 2024. Now, according to Dan Kelly, who is the president and CEO of the Canadian Federation of Independent Business, he says up to 250,000 small businesses across the country um, still face uncertain futures if the federal government doesn't extend that deadline further. 
And he's joined by Canada's premiers, who are now asking the federal government to extend repayment for another year. And in a letter to the uh, federal government, the premiers say that small businesses were just starting to recover from the COVID-19 damage. Then they were hit by higher inflation. They were hit by higher interest rates. And they're saying that without additional assistance now, they predict uh, what they call a catastrophic number of business failures. Now, the SEBA program itself, it distributed over $49 billion to small businesses and nonprofits. Uh, it was a part, uh, an essential part, I would say, of the uh, federal government's program to help businesses make it through those early days of COVID. But it looks like that support is probably waning here. And a press secretary uh, for the Department of Finance said the bottom line is that if you are a small business, you don't currently have the funds to repay your SIBA loan. You've now had three full years to repay it. At this point, at least, it doesn't look like the government is ready to step in and make any further extensions. Chevron announced this morning that it will be buying Hess Corp in an all-stock deal that's valued at $53 billion. Uh, in the deal itself, Chevron is offering $171 for every Hess share. Now, this comes on the heels of ExxonMobil reporting uh, just earlier this month that it will be buying Pioneer Natural Resources for $60 billion. The Chevron offer is 1.025 of its shares for every Hess share. Now, this deal will give Chevron more access to the Permian Basin where it's already had operations for a number of years now. Uh, Hess also has a significant oil assets in Guyana. Uh, seems like with the current high prices in the energy sector and the big profits in the space, uh, we're seeing these big energy companies taking advantage and they're buying up assets while the going is good. As part of this deal, Hess Corp CEO John Hess, um, he's expected to join Chevron's board of directors. The deal is expected to close in the first half of 2024. Today is Wednesday, October the 25th, 2023. Welcome to the show. On the program today, JP Morgan Chase CEO Jamie Dimon, he has some concerning words about the economy and the markets. We're going to look at what he had to say. The Bank of Canada has held rates as of for now, but doesn't rule out future hikes. We're going to update you on that announcement. Also, Bitcoin is on a bit of a tear. We're going to look at why that might be. We'll update you on the latest earnings reports. And finally, on today's show, 33 states have joined forces to sue Meta. Let's get started with today's news. Jamie Dimon, he is the CEO of JP Morgan Chase. And when he speaks, people just tend to pay attention. He had some pretty strong words yesterday when he spoke at a panel during the Future Investment Initiative Summit um, in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. His warning was focused on the dangers that central banks have of locking in a preconceived outlook for the economy. He highlighted the poor track records uh, of the central banks, like for example, the Federal Reserve. He said in his statement, Prepare for possibilities and probabilities, not calling one course of action, since I've never seen anyone call it. I want to point out the central banks 18 months ago were 100% dead wrong. He added, I would be quite cautious about what might happen next year. Now, Diamond, of course, is referencing the previous Fed comments about a year and a half ago or so, where he said, or they said rather, that inflation would be transitory in nature. And of course, we all know that that obviously with hindsight as our benefit isn't the case. Um, in his commentary, he basically discounted uh, the importance of whether the Fed would raise again uh, in 2023. In his opinion, the surge in interest rates that we've seen so far, he doesn't feel that an extra 25 points is actually even going to make a difference. Um, Diamond uh, is quite pessimistic these days. About a month ago, he warned that businesses should be prepared for interest rates as high as 7%. And as policymakers um, face these prospects of continued elevated inflation and slow growth, 
Um, he was referencing the, the scenario where we would slip into what's known as stagflation. These latest comments also come on the heels of his recent dire commentary, seems to be a pile of it, where he said, this may be the most dangerous time the world has seen in decades. As expected, the Canadian Central Bank held its key overnight rate at 5% this morning, but it did note that it was open to more rate hikes as it tries to make sure that inflation doesn't really get away on them. And it did mention that the overnight rate could stay above its 2% target for another two years. Uh, the bank now expects inflation to average around 3.5% for the next 12 months and then fall back to that 2% rate around the middle of 2025. Uh, the central bank also cut its 2023 growth forecasts of to 1.2%, and that is down from the 1.8% that it had predicted in July. Overall, the report from the central bank was a tad gloomy, uh, but I'd say also it's very realistic. Uh, we're currently seeing a combination of slower growth. We're seeing higher inflation rates, and obviously um, this isn't the ideal atmosphere for businesses to operate in. In summary, the bank said in this report, Governing Council wants to see downward momentum in core inflation and continues to be focused on the balance between demand and supply in the economy, inflation expectations, wage growth, and corporate pricing behavior. Bitcoin, if you haven't noticed, has been on a bit of a tear for the past few days, recently passing back up above the $35,000 level for the first time since May of last year. It's now up around 30% in the last couple of weeks. So the latest round of enthusiasm appears to stem from uh, the fact that a number of money managers that we've we've known this for a little while have applied for cryptocurrency um, ETF. So that's not really new news. But the thought is that once these uh, funds do come online, it will legitimize the sector and it'll lead to stronger demand overall. The big difference this time around is that it was recently noticed that a listing for a BlackRock ETF or Bitcoin showed up on a list at the Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation, which is a clearinghouse for stocks and ETFs that is operated by uh, NASDAQ. The BlackRock application is still pending approval, but the listing did catch uh, attention of investors and it is seen um, as an indicator that the uh, approval is imminent. At this point though, the listing doesn't actually mean that a fund has been launched or approved, but it is seen to be part of BlackRock's preparations to actually launch a fund in the near future. It's human nature to kind of wonder how other people are invested. And if for any reason you've ever wondered how um, I would invest my portfolio, it's actually pretty easy to find out. Now, if you are a Blossom user, you can just look me up. My username on the platform is Mark B, so it's M-A-R-C-B. You can see my current holdings. You can see any recent trades that I've made, some logic behind the trades. Um, if you're not a Blossom user yet, you can download the app for free. You can set up an account. There you go. You look me up, you hit follow, and you're gonna have your answer. There are a lot of earnings out this week. I'm gonna report on a few of those right now, but before I do, I just wanna throw out a question to, to you, our audience here. And um, earnings tend to be quite number data focused. And uh, I just wanna make sure that um, it's something that you want me to spend time on here as I do these reports. So if you don't mind, just uh, leave a quick note down in the comments as to whether yes, you appreciate the number oriented driven um, earnings reports or whether that's something you just uh, like me to skip over. Uh, in future editions. So I really would appreciate that. Leave a comment below. Uh, for today, at least though, I am going to cover some of the more relevant earnings that have come out over the past couple of days. CNR, Canadian National Railway, 
It reported its Q3 adjusted diluted earnings Tuesday. It reported earnings of $1.69 a share, and that's down significantly from the $2.13 that it reported a year earlier. It also missed expectations, which were at $1.72 a share. Revenue was at $3.99 billion, again, down from the $4.51 billion it reported a year ago. Expected earnings were $4.05 billion. The company said that it continues to expect fiscal 2023 earnings to be a flat to slightly negative year over year, and it did retain its quarterly dividend of $0.79 a share. Microsoft also reported on Tuesday, and it reported Q1 2024 earnings of $2.99 per share. That's up from $2.35 a year earlier. Expected earnings there were $2.65, so it came out quite attractive that way. Revenue increased to $56.52 billion. That is again up from the $50.12 billion reported a year ago. Also exceeded expectations of $54.55 billion. Alphabet reported its Q3 earnings Tuesday as well. It reported $1.55 per diluted share. That is up from $1.06 a share a year earlier. It beat expectations of $1.45. Revenue for the quarter was $76.69 billion. Again, up from the $69.09 billion a year ago. And it also beat expectations of $75.75 billion. Coca-Cola reported its fiscal Q3 net income Tuesday of 74 cents per diluted share, and that is up from a reported 69 cents a share a year earlier. Net operating revenue from the quarter was $11.95 billion. That compares with $11.06 billion a year ago. The expectation was $11.42 billion, so they beat expectation there. The company also offered some guidance for 2023, and it says it now expects comparable earnings to grow between 7 and 8 percent, and that's up from the prior outlook of 5 to 6 percent. General Motors also reported its Q3 earnings on Tuesday, and it reported $2.28 per diluted share. That's up from $2.25 a year earlier. It also beat the street expectation of $1.84. Revenue from the quarter was $44.13 billion, up from $41.89 billion a year ago. And it also beat expectations of $43.25 billion. Now this morning, Boeing reported a Q3 loss of $3.26 per diluted share. And that compares with $6.18 a year earlier. Um, analysts had expected a normalized per share loss of $2.61. So you could say this was a disappointing number there. Revenue from the quarter was $18.1 billion. That compares with $15.96 billion a year ago, but does come under the street expectations of $18.3 billion. In this report, uh, Boeing reaffirmed its full year 2023 operating cash flow guidance of $4.5 billion to $6.5 billion, and it reaffirmed its cash flow outlook of $3 billion to $5 billion. 33 states yesterday, led by Colorado and California, they filed a joint lawsuit against Meta. And in the lawsuit, they say that uh, the company violated consumer protection laws that uh, unfairly deceived users, they say, uh, particularly children, uh, about the safety of its platforms. Uh, Meta, of course, operates Facebook, it operates Instagram, WhatsApp, uh, and Messenger. In the complaint, the lawsuit alleges that the company, quote, designed psychologically manipulative product features to induce young users compulsive and extended use. Uh, the suit also alleges that the algorithms that were designed by the companies pushed children and teenagers down into what they call uh, rabbit holes of toxic and harmful content. It's alleged also that Meta had designed psychologically manipulative product features 
that would induce uh, young users to, you know, what they're sort of referring to as compulsive and extended use. Now, it seems here that the sheer fact that so many of these states have come together to sue Meta, uh, it's a real strong uh, show of force, and it shows that they're prioritizing, or at least attempting to prioritize, the issue of children and online safety. And it is somewhat reminiscent of previously filed cases against, you know, the big tobacco companies or big pharma companies. Um, it does seem like it's been forever that the regulators have been trying to hold social media companies accountable. It sure seems to me like it's a losing battle. And sadly, uh, I'm not sure that these most this latest round uh, of charges will actually change anything. It is Monday, October the 30th, 2023. Welcome to the program. On the show today, there's a little known tax deadline that falls due tomorrow, and this could cost Canadians thousands of dollars. We're gonna talk about that. Also, there is finally some hope that the North American auto strikes will soon be over. I'll update you on the latest there. Plus, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem, he's sending a mixed message about when we can expect interest rates to go back to the 2% range, and we'll cover the latest earnings reports. Let's get started with today's news. I was speaking the other day with my accountant and he expressed concern that there are a lot of Canadian homeowners who are at risk of serious financial penalties if they don't file paperwork by tomorrow, October 31st. He's referring to Ottawa's underused housing tax, so UHT. That took effect at the beginning of last year and it targets foreign nationals who own property here in Canada that's considered to be either vacant or underused. On the face of it, that sounds like a pretty good idea, but this is where things get a little bit complicated even though the tax is, f is focused on foreign nationals, it also applies to trusts and partnerships. So if you're a Canadian citizen or a permanent resident, some of the new rules will impose a filing obligation on you. And even though it's unlikely you're gonna have to pay the actual tax, if you don't file on time, even if it's just a filing to claim an exemption, you may be liable for penalties and those start at 5,000 bucks. Here at home in Canada, it's a very common scenario that a Canadian who wants to help their adult children buy a home, they may co-sign a mortgage in order to satisfy the requirements by the lender. It's often required in those cases that the parent is actually added to the title of the property. Now this could really be like a 1% ownership, but it does mean that legally you're a part owner of that property. In a scenario like this, you would actually be required to file to avoid a penalty. Uh, another scenario is a situation where a couple owns a rental property and both partners are on, on title. They may also uh, be obligated to file because from a legal standpoint, uh, this arrangement where both partners are part of this is considered to be an actual partnership. So if you hold a residential property in a trust or in a partnership, the legislation requires that you file tax returns. Under normal circumstances here, the filing deadline uh, for the previous year is April 30th of the following year, uh, but partly because this is a new rule, and I think there are a lot of people out there who may innocently not be aware of these requirements. If you didn't file in April of this year, the CRA will waive any penalties. They're gonna waive any interest um, if you file uh, by October 31st of this year. Well, it happened again. We had auto workers here in Canada uh, at an auto plant going on strike. And then within a few hours, they were back uh, working after tentative deals were struck. And um, after going on strike on Sunday, negotiators for Unifor and for Stellantis, they reached a tentative deal. And this is really, really good news for the Canadian automobile industry. The agreement uh, must still be ratified by the majority of the Stellantis employees, which are around 8,200 or so. Uh, details of the agreement weren't immediately released, but per the ground rules of this round of negotiations, the agreement is going to match pretty much for the most part the demands uh, of the deals that have already been reached by Canadian workers at both Ford 
and GM. They, they uh, came up to agreements earlier. Um, those contracts included a $10,000 signing bonus and raises of 10% in year one and 2% and 3% in the following years. Um, if you fall into the category of being a skilled trade worker, you're going to see an additional 2.75% raise in year one and 2.5% in year three. Now, also key to these agreements was the reduction in the number of years that it takes new employees to reach the top of the regular pay scale. Under the old contract, that would take eight years to reach the maximum of $37 an hour, uh, but now that's reduced to four years. Under the old contract, uh, new hires would start at around $24 an hour. Now, in similar negotiations in the U.S., General Motors, as of this morning, was remaining as the only big three Detroit automaker that hadn't reached an agreement with the United Auto Workers or the UAW. But breaking news this morning is that both parties have now reached an agreement just earlier this morning. On Saturday, Stellantis had reached an agreement with the UAW and that ended a six-week strike at certain of their plants. Um, last week, Ford and the UAW also agreed to a similar deal. In both of these cases, the agreements do still uh, require ratification of the union members, so it's not set in stone yet. Um, deals of the new arrangement this morning with GM, they weren't available at the time I'm filming this video, but we probably could take some guidance from the deals that have already been struck with the other two automakers. Uh, Ford, for example, their deal includes a $5,000 ratification bonus, special retirement incentive packages, and like here in Canada, it, it provides a faster path to the top pay scale and full-time status. Uh, with Ford, temporary workers will immediately obtain permanent employee status, so that's a good thing there. Um, in the uh, other U.S. tentative deals, auto workers are going to be receiving a 25% pay hike over the four and a half year contract. When you factor in compounding and you factor in the cost of living, the total pay hikes are going to amount to more than 33%. And of course, as is always the case, who's going to pay the bill at the end of the day? It's going to be the consumer who's going to be paying the added costs that these new contracts are going to impose. And according to Ford, it expects that the new contract will add between $850 and $900 in labor to the cost of each vehicle. If you lack confidence in your investing abilities and you're trying your best to learn this whole investing world, well, first off, take uh, take some solvers. You're not alone. Most people, in fact, grew up without any formal training in how to manage their finances. This is especially true when it comes to investing. At our Investing Academy, we offer online training and our programs are designed to take you through the whole investment process from being a raw beginner up to being a fully confident investor. Check out the Academy website for more information. I will put a link in the description of this video. In an interview with CBC last week, Bank of Canada Governor Tiff Macklem, he said that the bank may not have to raise interest rates any further if inflation slows to the point where it's in line with the bank's expectations. He said, the economy is not overheated anymore. We do think that there's more inflation relief in the pipeline, and if that comes through, we won't have to raise rates further. Now, when the bank announced its rate decision just this past Wednesday, it did leave the overnight rate at 5%, but they also said during the announcement that it would consider more hikes if inflation worsened from where we're at today. Uh, the next Bank of Canada rate announcement doesn't come until December the 6th, so more than a month out from now. Uh, current odds are that there's a 14% chance that they will raise rates again uh, during this tightening phase. At this point, though, Macklem says that he can't say when rates will start coming down again. He noted that uh, they will need to see clear evidence that we're on a path back to that 2% inflation target before discussions uh, on the lowering interest rates can actually start. Um, he says that he can, though, see the interest rates reaching the 2% target at some point in 2025. First off, I would like to thank everyone who took time last week to provide feedback 
on what you want from this next section of the program here. Uh, for the most part, you did say that you found value in the earnings reports I'm giving out here. And I did receive a number of suggestions and some ideas how I can improve the segment. So based on what you've said, I'm definitely gonna to continue to plan the earnings reports. Uh, I will look for ways to implement some ideas, make it even more valuable for you. Now, right now we are deep, deep, deep into earnings season. and It would be uh, impossible for me to report on every company's earnings but I do plan to highlight some of the more broadly held stocks, hit as many as possible uh, without turning this into an hour long video. So I'll get started uh, with this morning's announcements. And first off, Air Canada, they reported this morning adjusted net income of $1.28 billion or $3.41 per diluted share. And that is up from 431 million or $1.7 per share a year ago. Analysts had expected $2.18 per share, so they beat on that. Operating revenue from the quarter was $6.34 billion. That's up 19% from the $5.32 billion it reported a year earlier. Again, analysts had expected a $6.09 billion number. Free cash flow from Q3 was $135 million versus a loss of $43 million just a year ago. Going into the fourth quarter now, Air Canada says that it plans to increase its available seat miles capacity by 10% from the same quarter a year ago. For the full year of 2023, the company now expects available seat miles capacity to increase by 20% uh, versus 2022 year over year uh, instead of the previous announced 21%. McDonald's this morning, they reported their Q3 non-GAAP earnings of $3.19 per diluted share, and that's up from $2.68 a year earlier. Analysts had expected $2.99 there. Revenue from the quarter was $6.69 billion compared with $5.87 a year earlier. A highlight of the McDonald's report was that global comparable sales were up 8.8% during the quarter. Now, last week, we also had reports from uh, both MasterCard and Visa, so we'll look at those now. MasterCard reported Q3 earnings of $3.39 per share. That's up from $2.68 a year earlier. It also beats expectations of $3.21. Net revenue from the quarter was $6.53 billion. That compares with $5.76 billion a year earlier and also is right in line with expectations of $6.53 billion. Visa, they reported fiscal Q4 earnings on Tuesday last week. Earnings per share were $2.33, up from $1.93 a year earlier and just over expectations of $2.24 a share. Revenue from the quarter was $8.61 billion, up from the $7.79 billion it saw a year ago, and also above expectations of $8.55 billion. Now, Visa said that it expects its fiscal year 2024 adjusted earnings to be in the low teens. They also said that they expect revenue growth to be in the high single digit to low double digits for the year, and they're expecting revenues of $36.04 billion. If we shift now to the auto sector, Ford reported late last week earnings of 39 cents per diluted share and that is up from 30 cents a year earlier way below the expectation though of 46 cents as the analysts had expected revenue from the quarter ended september 30th was 43.8 billion dollars up from the 39.39 billion dollars a year earlier and also above analyst expectations of 42.51 billion ford during the announcement they did withdraw its 2023 guidance and they say this is pending ratification of the tentative labor agreement that they recently reached uh, with the uaw which i just reported on a bit earlier since the report shares of ford are down 15 uh, percent amazon also reported last week 94 cents per diluted share up from 28 cents a year earlier. 
that also blew away the expectations of 58 cents a share. Net sales for the quarter were $143.08 billion, and that's up from $127 billion a year earlier. Again, slightly above analyst expectations of $141.56 billion. The company says now that it expects Q4 net sales to range between $160 and $167 billion, and analysts are expecting the numbers to come in at the higher end of that range of $167.04 billion. Now, I want to move into the Canadian utility sector. Fortis reported third quarter net earnings of $394 million or 81 cents per common share and that is up from the 326 million or 68 cents a share it saw in 2022. As part of the announcement, they also uh, released their 2024 to 2028 uh, capital plan, which is $25 billion. That represents a 6.3% average annualized rate base growth. Canadian Utilities also has reported. They reported their adjusted third quarter earnings of $87 million or 32 cents per share. That is down from the 120 million or 45 cents a share that they saw a year ago. Analysts were expecting 33 cents a share. Revenue from the quarter was $812 million. That's down around 10% or so from the $898 million that it saw a year ago. That's a big miss there with the expectations of $898.7 million. 